We're in John 19. We're going to read verses 31 through 42 today. And we're going to be looking at the care that was given to the body of Jesus after he died on the cross, before he raised from the dead. Kind of what, what John wants to document about that scene. So let's read in verse 31. <clears throat> Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. <clears throat> For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed so much to us in your word, and yet we could spend our whole lives studying it and still only scratch the surface of really understanding who you are and all about your character and your heart and your mind and your plan and your sovereignty. We just scratch the surface of it. I pray that when we come to this text today, even if we know it well, that you would give us a sense of reverence and, and honor for you and a desire to learn something more about you that will help us to grow in you and, and grow in faith, grow in knowledge, grow in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so a little bit of background here. The day of preparation. So, um... The Jewish Sabbath was the one day a week when they rested. That comes from Genesis, the story of Genesis, how God worked for six days, creating all things. On the seventh day, he rested, and then he commanded his people to rest on the seventh day. For the Jews, this was a Saturday. We started making that Sunday in the New Testament. We'll get into that in a few weeks when we're in Acts about why that is. But for now, just to know that the Sabbath was a Saturday, the day of preparation was the day before Saturday at about 3 p.m. till the next day. They would prepare for the Sabbath because they weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to, to prepare meals on the Sabbath. So that day before, they would spend a lot of time preparing so that on Saturday they could do nothing. There is a lesson there for us if we want to actually have a day of rest I don't believe that it, this is law for us. There, there is no, in fact, it's pretty clear in the New Testament that this, the whole Sabbath was a sign of the future rest we get to have in eternity with Christ. But it's still, as far as health and spirituality, a good idea to have a day of rest per week. 
but we often get so busy we can't do it. So there is a lesson there about we might want to consider the day before that a day of preparation to get things in order so that we can actually rest on that day. It was also a high day. And what that means is in the Jewish calendar year, there were certain festivals. And sometimes, you know, kind of how like for us on Christmas, it's always December 25th, but that's sometimes a different day of the week. It could be a Sunday. It could be a Wednesday. For them, the same thing. Sometimes these festivals would fall where it also fell on a Sabbath. So it was not only a Sabbath, but also a festival. And so the high day meant that this Sabbath fell on Passover week. So they were celebrating Passover as well as the Sabbath. So it was a very, a very special day, a very special time. And so they had a lot to prepare for. And um, Passover was a festival, just to kind of review real quick, where when um, if you've seen the cartoon movie of Moses or even the, the acting real live movies, the story of Moses and the Israelites being slaves in Egypt when God set them free, he kept doing different signs and plagues to try to convince Pharaoh. And the last one he's, he, that he gave was that he killed the firstborn son across the land. Unless you sacrifice an animal and put the blood on the post of your door, and then the angel of the Lord would pass over your house. And that's how the Jews, their firstborns, weren't killed. If they were obedient, the blood caused God's wrath to pass over them. So Christ being called the Passover lamb, his blood being shed for us, so the pass, so the wrath of God passes over us. There's lots of we, that you could look at there, but for this, just the, the context today, they're in Passover week where the Jews are celebrating God's deliverance from being slaves. <clears throat> so that's kind of where they're at with all this. It's a very important time for them, very important time of the year. They didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So here's what's going on with that. There's this law in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21. I'll just read it to you. Verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who was hanged is cursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gave you as an inheritance. So God gave this law that if someone was killed because of a crime, and they were hung, they shouldn't hang overnight. It'll defile the land. You have to bury them the same day. So here's what they're thinking. Today, the day that Christ died, was this day of preparation. It's still early, but it's getting to the time where they've got to start going to prepare for their Sabbath and for you know Passover's happening. So if, if Christ dies that day, after they've already begun their preparations, it's going to be hard to come back to bury him that same day. But they also can't leave him overnight because that'll curse the land. But if he doesn't die that day and he lives all night long and then dies on the next day, then they'll have to bury him on the Sabbath, which they're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So see all these legal problems they're facing with this Saturday or this Friday crucifixion? As they're looking towards the day of preparation, the Sabbath, they just want it to be over with now because they don't want to risk having to not do their day of preparation. They don't want to risk having to work on the Sabbath, especially not for this criminal Jesus who they don't like anyway. So again, they're more concerned with these legalistic things about their religion and not about the fact that they actually just murdered somebody, an innocent man. So that's, that's the context there. And so what they would often do in this kind of situation was break people's legs. And, and here's why. 
when you're hanging on a cross, you know, they would nail your hands and tie your hands, and your feet would be bound and, and nailed as well. And in order to breathe, you had to be able to push up to take a breath, because after a while, you're just too exhausted, and your lungs can't, can't expand to pull in air when your arms are like this, so you'd have to do this to breathe. So imagine the suffering of, you know, this could last for days and days if you're strong enough, where you're, you're only alive because you can keep doing this to breathe. So they would go and they'd break their legs so they couldn't, and they would just suffocate and die quickly. That's why they would do that. But he was already dead. We saw in, in, uh, in verse 32 and verse 33, they start coming around and doing this. So the other two men were still alive, and, and they, they break their legs and they die, but Jesus was already dead. So this shows that the punishment Christ received was, was more than those he was hanging with. The other criminals, even though they were crucified, they weren't at all beaten as hard as Jesus was because, I mean, they were still alive and just ready to keep on ticking for a while. But they came to Christ, and like six hours later, he's already gone. That's how much punishment he endured. So then the soldier pierces his side. And I was wondering to myself, why would you pierce his side if he's already dead? I think it was to verify, just to make sure, because, you know... um, he looks dead, but he could be unconscious. He could be in a coma. There's a lot going on with this kind of painful death where you might just end up going into a coma and they think you're dead, but you're, you're not yet, or you're breathing so lightly. But you're still, so they just, just to make sure they'd pierce the side. And then blood and water came out. We discussed this last week when we had communion. Um, during this scourging, the whip that was used was called a flagrum. You heard the term before? Flagrum whip? It's braided leather thongs with metal balls and pieces of sharp bone woven into braids. And so these metal balls added weight. And so when, they, when they'd get whipped, it would cause really deep bruising and deep wounds and deep, a lot of deep wounds and bleeding. And um, so I, I explained last week how this would cause people sometimes to go into what's called hyper, hypovolemic shock, which is when you lose too much blood. And all your heart knows is that your body needs more blood, so it's just pumping. And it keeps trying to pump more and more, but there's not enough blood to pump with. And your body's also retaining water then. It's trying to hold in all those liquids because it needs fluids. And this kind of sack of fluid kind of gathers around the heart. So then when they pierce his heart, that's why both blood and water, it was all being built up there. Just again, goes to show the kind of suffering that he went through. Um, And so then John goes into this section where he says, Now, I've seen and testified, and my testimony is true, and I'm telling you the truth. So you may believe. I think the reason why he's saying that is because there was there were some early, um, and it, this is even is still today the same case. Some people will say that well, Christ didn't really die. They took him off the cross and buried him, but he was still alive. That's why he didn't really raise from the dead. He he just hadn't really died. This is John saying, no, I I, I was there. I saw this happen. Blood and water came out. They pierced his side. I know he was dead. I, my testimony is true. I saw it with my own eyes. That that's what he's trying to defend there is look this he really did he really did die it wasn't it actually happened it's not just a stunt he wasn't just in a coma he actually died and again John reminds us that these things fulfilled scripture and these are two interesting quotes that he gives not a bone of him shall be broken that comes from Psalms forty thirty four um, verses nineteen through twenty. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then this next one, um, actually, no, there's one more interesting thing about the whole bones being broken thing. In Exodus 12, verse 46, there's this law about how to eat the Passover lamb. 
as part of the Passover fest, the lamb they'd eat. It says, It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Wow. So imagine, you know, you go to Walmart and you buy one of the rotisserie chickens and you bring it home, you know. I love the leg. So I break off a leg, and Noah gets the other one because he likes the leg. And so we, so imagine you have this lamb, and you're eating this lamb, but you can't break any bones. So as you're cutting it, be very careful because you can't break any bones. It's an interesting rule because you know when the Jews would sacrifice animals, God would require that you sacrifice the best. You don't find your sickly, weakling lamb and offer that to God. You offer your best to God. That, that was kind of this rule, but that was for the offering when you're presenting it to God, but afterwards when it's just meat, when, and it's already dead, the offering's been done, it's dead now, why can't you break the bones then? And I, I was looking all over different, um, different Jewish websites and different Jewish commentaries to, to figure out why, if there's any kind of explanation for this. I couldn't find a satisfactory one. I don't understand why after the sacrifice is done and now they're eating the lamb, why they couldn't break the bones. The only thing that makes sense to me is that this was a future prophecy of Christ. There, there really, as far as, I mean, it was a, a clean animal, it was without blemish, it was the best of the best, and they sacrificed it, and now it's done, and now they're just feasting on it and eating it. I can find no spiritual application for why you can't break the bones, except that Jesus knew, being God, that when he was crucified, none of his bones would be broken. And he put this law in place beforehand as a foreshadowing of that. So that's my argument. If you don't agree, that's fine. But that's, that's what I think is happening here. I can find no other better um, explanation for that. So now we come to some interesting things. Two interesting characters, actually. Um, starting in verse 38 and through verse 42, we see that there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he and Nicodemus bury Jesus. So Joseph, this man, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. We don't know a ton about him. This is what we do know about him. He was from a city in Judea called Arimathea. So they called him Joseph of Arimathea. We also know that in, from Luke that he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the same thing that Nicodemus was part of. This was the, the 70 most distinguished members in Israel, the, the top leaders of, of, of all of Israel. They were in this ruling class that was distinguished. There were 70 of them. And they made laws, they passed judgment, they, they did that. And so this was one of the men who was in that council with Nicodemus. It was, an, it was not uncommon to be extremely rich, and we do see that as well. Um, Matthew 27 says that Joseph was a very rich man. It also says that he hadn't consented to the death of Christ. So you might remember back in John 11, we, we went through this a few months back, where they're all getting together and they're talking about, what do we do with this man, Jesus? He's, he's causing a huge movement. Everybody's following him, and we're losing control of our people, and this is going to look bad as far as Rome and, and all that. We're going to lose everything. And so that's when it says in John 11, verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who we saw a couple chapters back, 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people that the, and that the whole nation not perish. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So that was a decision that was made in this great council, but Joseph wasn't on board with it. It says he didn't vote for that. I would say Nicodemus is the same. And so we know that Joseph... Joseph he was a disciple, but he was a secret disciple. He was afraid of the Jews, it says here. He was afraid of the, the peer pressure of his Jewish brethren. And um, it, this is a dangerous place to be in. He believed, but he was too afraid. Now, similarly, Nicodemus, we saw back in John 3, he came to Jesus by night. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He's also a rich guy. And Jesus called him ruler of the Jews, teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. And so in Jesus' mind, this man Nicodemus was not even just of the 70, but among those 70, he was seen as a leader. So they really looked up to Nicodemus. And this man came to Christ by night asking these questions like, I see these miracles you're doing, and, but you're teaching things that I can't reconcile with my, with my belief system. And how do I make sense of this all? And Christ is saying things like, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus became a believer as well. Both of them, though, out of fear of the Jews, were, were secret believers. And it's important to see the contrast here. There have been different kinds of disciples thus far, but these two were secret disciples. They, they, they had been afraid of the Jews. And so, in this passage, we're reminded that um, followers of Jesus aren't one-size-fits-all. We're not all the same. Our stories aren't all the same. Our testimonies aren't all the same. We've all seen all sorts of followers that respond differently at different times and are used by God in different ways for different purposes. So the reminder for us is that God has a purpose for all of us now, no matter what's our, what our past says. You might remember in John 6, there were those followers that were following Jesus just because he had just given them all bread and fish for free, 5,000 of them, and they were just following him, chasing him back and forth to see the next miracle, to get the next bit of bread. They were following him for the signs, but they couldn't bear his teaching, and so many left in John 6. But it's even for those that Christ died. It's even for those that... Christ would say, repent and believe and return to me. Those who had only followed for the signs and for the miracles, who couldn't bear the teaching and walked away, God could have a plan for them. All they got to do is repent and believe and come back. That's one kind of follower. We also saw in John 18 that Peter, who had been a follower publicly, without being ashamed at all, suddenly denies Christ three times. And so then he and John follow at a distance, but the rest of the disciples scatter, just like Jesus said they were going to. They had followed him for three and a half years, listened to all of his teachings, seen all of his miracles. And in his most needing moment, in his most trying moment, they left. But even for them, after Christ was raised, he came to them, he made them breakfast, he, he gave them all chance to be restored to him, and then he renewed their calling, gave them the Spirit, and God used them mightily. We'll see that in Acts. That those who, even, even though they scattered when their master, their teacher, their Messiah, was betrayed, He brought them all back in and restored them and sent them out and used them. That's a different kind of follower. But in this chapter, what we see is two disciples who were afraid to make their faith public during Christ's entire ministry. They had watched from a distance 
too afraid to profess faith in him the whole time. But they'd heard it all. Imagine the shame they'd feel because they've heard him say things like, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. He's heard him say things like, if you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your brother or sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your friends or your family or your job, your position more than me, you're not worthy of me. And they're hearing these things and they're following at a distance, still too afraid to profess him. But they're hearing that. And they heard him say things like, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father in heaven. Imagine just this, this, the, the, the internal anguish of the fear of man, and you believe, and yet you're too afraid to say anything, all the while you're hearing Christ say these things, you're seeing Him do these miracles, and you're too afraid to stand up for Him. And then He dies, and they see Him crucified. They watch this excruciating death, and this death was meant to be public. The whole point of this kind of death was to strike fear in everybody else. It was to say, follow this man and this is what your end will look like. And indeed, many of the disciples, most of them were killed or stoned. Some were crucified. It was in order to strike fear. And yet, in this moment, for some reason, even though the most bold followers like Peter were too afraid, it's these two guys that decide, if I don't stand up for Christ now, I'm never going to. I've denied him for years, and now he's dead. This is like my last chance, kind of. And how ashamed they must have felt. And yet, they get to do this deed. They go to Pilate, they ask for his body, they get to bury him. And it might seem like a small thing. If you compare that to Peter, who walked with Christ you know, since the beginning was there for Christ through all of it, escaped from the crowds with Christ when they wanted to kill him, was given power by Christ to cast out demons and do miracles and, and preach. Peter had done all these things, and all these guys got to do was bury the dead body. And it seems trivial, but it's really not. All four Gospels mention these people. Every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mentioned these two guys. It was not trivial. To have the fear of man is a difficult thing. To be afraid to speak out publicly is a, is a horrible thing to struggle with. And for those two people who had been afraid this whole time, to go to Pilate himself and ask for the body was an extremely bold move for them. But don't you think they might have struggled with thinking... You know, what a waste. My life's been a waste because he was here for three and a half years. Just think of all I could have done. If I had just professed him publicly, if I had just given up my, my office, my, my Sanhedrin brethren, if I had just given it all up and walked with him, that would have been something. Now all I can do is bury the body. What a wasted life. And now my chance is gone. He's dead now. They could have thought those things. But no one really understood that he was going to raise again and reveal himself to everybody again, and have this whole future. And it, we don't exactly know what happens to Joseph and Nicodemus later on. There are some traditions and some things we could look at about that, but um, for sure in this moment, they became public followers. You can't go before Pilate and ask for the body without it becoming known to everybody that, okay, these are followers of Christ. They would have been rejected by their brothers, the Sanhedrin. They would have been cast out by them. 
So they stood up for Christ when no one else did. And the disciples, they probably didn't even know these were followers until this moment. How would they have known that Nicodemus or, or Joseph were even followers until this moment? Because they had been too afraid to ever mention it. Imagine their shock. They're too afraid to do this. Of course their Messiah deserves a good burial, but they're not the ones who ask. It's two men who have been afraid that finally have the courage. And they're like, what are they doing? Why, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin, what's, what's going on? It would have been shocking for them. It was an odd moment, but God was in it, and because of that, their story is alive today. And so I think the quick lesson we have from this is that no matter what's in our past, no matter how much time we have left in our future, God has a plan for us now. If we just turn to Him and give Him our today and our tomorrow, there's a purpose for us. The past is gone. Let us follow Him today. And we don't need to look at our past we don't need to look at our present or our future. All we got to do is look to Christ. That's it. Because He holds our future in His hands, and our life will not be wasted. No matter what we look back on, no matter what we regret, no matter what Joseph and Nicodemus had to deal with, with guilt and shame for how long they had been rejecting and hearing these words, like, if you reject me, I'll reject you, and you're not worthy of me if you deny me. All of that, they decided, forget it. I'm just going to go to Pilate right now and ask for his body. I'm going to bury this man. I believe in this man. I'm going to make it whatever. My past is my past, but today is now. And today I'm going to say, I believe in Pilate. Give us the body. That's all that matters. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 3.14, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No one is disqualified. We can today look to Christ, look to the future, and it's like Paul says, Paul, who had murdered Christians before, says, I forget all that. I leave it behind, and I'm reaching forward, and he know, he's pressing on towards the goal for the prize. So even Paul, who had been a murderer before, knows if he presses on, there's going to be a prize. No one's disqualified. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for the lessons we can get from these men, Joseph and Nicodemus. I thank you that even for those who struggle with fear of man and peer pressure and insecurities, that their life's not wasted. I pray you'd help us to have the faith to be bold when it's needed, to stand up for what's right, to love you and to love other people, and help us to not be resentful of our past or regret it. Help us to accept our past, accept what's happened in it, receive forgiveness for anything we've done, and just move on with you. Look to you, look to Christ, and keep going. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.